Thank you, Ben. We're privileged this morning to have Jim Smucker here with us to give us our message. I liked Jim right away before I even met him. <clears throat> Via email correspondence, I asked him about himself, and the first thing he said was, husband of Anna. I like that. And then he named his three children, one of who is represented here, Rachel. Um, Jim is also, and he didn't tell me this, but I figured it out, is also the nephew of our own Marcus Smucker, and apparently uncle to Laura Kanegi. I don't know if Laura's here this morning or not. Um, he normally attends Akron Mennonite Church and owns and manages the Bird in Hand Corporation. And to top it off, he has a PhD in leadership and organizational changes. So let's welcome Jim. Good morning. It's certainly it's a privilege to be here this morning. I bring you greetings from Akron Mennonite. When I was given the invitation, I must admit it's one I couldn't hardly turn down because for many years I was in the pews being preached to by my Uncle Marcus, and this morning I get to return that favor. <laughs> my Myers-Briggs personality assessment profile tells me that I'm a rational. By nature, a planner and a controller. So it was a bit disconcerting for me several years ago when I spent a week with 30 other people and one of my favorite leadership authors, Margaret Wheatley. The disconcerting part was that she brought along a jazz unit, uh, musician by the name of Jerry Gernelli to co-lead the seminar. And it took me a better part of the week to figure out what a jazz musician had to teach us organizational leaders. There were three experiences that Jerry led that pushed me out of my comfort zone that all relate to this First Corinthians text this morning. The first experience was on a seminar, Leadership as a Performing Art. What does it mean to be on the spot, focused, attentive, and at the same time relaxed and open to an event and its surroundings? In front of 30 people, and without a script or a plan, I was told to create a dance, and while dancing, speak extemporaneously about a very insecure moment in my life. <laughs> Being my father's son and a good Mennonite, this was a stretch. I do not dance, let alone move in unplanned ways. The second experience was at a plenary session with over 300 people on the topic, how do we navigate with strategic intention through unpredictable conditions? To illustrate, Jerry and several others led us in an evening of improvisation using audience members as participants in unplanned, spontaneous movement and action. And I will never forget the horror that I shared with a fellow rational as we sat in the middle of the audience, figuratively holding on to each other, hoping that we would not be called upon to do something spontaneous and unplanned in front of 300 others. The final experience was perhaps the most memorable. Jerry taught us the method that jazz musicians use to make music together. Members of a jazz band often improvise their performance, creating music in real time. Jazz combines the unpredictability of the future with the gifts of the individuals. There's a basic structure, a song, a key, a tempo, a beat, but that is about as much direction as they have. From this basic structure, they bring a focus and attentiveness to each other and the environment. They're relaxed and open to the spontaneous. Despite very different gifts and instruments, all members of the band are important. And they play off each other's gifts with different people taking leadership at different times. What's more, 
The diversity of the gifts gives jazz a unique sound. All members of a jazz band, or in our case, the 30-member group, added value to the sounds that were created. By the end of the week, Jerry had us making beautiful music together, spontaneously singing in 30-part improvised harmony. I want to spend some time with the 1 Corinthians 12 text this morning and then come back to these stories and consider what we might learn from the Corinthians text in jazz. I spent some time dwelling on the scripture, and here are just a few of the things that stood out to me. First of all, it's important to understand what precedes this text. What is the larger context here? An overarching theme in chapters 12 to 14 is Paul's concern that the community at Corinth is putting too much emphasis on the gift of speaking in tongues. Some of the leaders at Corinth were correlating a person's ability to speak in tongues with their faithfulness as a believer. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul faced a similar problem. Their circumcision, instead of speaking in tongues, had become the litmus test. Paul argues in Galatians, however, that the key indicator of whether people are truly believers is, that if, if, is if they have received the Holy Spirit, not whether or not they measure up to some man-made idea of giftedness or meet a certain litmus test. In verse 12, Paul uses the metaphor of the body to explain the functioning of the church. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. This metaphor helps organize the second half of this chapter and has some striking similarities for me with the jazz metaphor that I learned from Jerry. The body image helps us understand that through a complex and interconnected series of relationships, we experience unity with diversity, unique roles toward a shared end, and the body functioning over time as something much more than just a collection of disconnected parts. In fact, a body is a set of mysterious, interconnected, and dynamic relationships that create and sustain life, unique and living parts, each performing a specific role for the greater good. In this way, for Paul, the local church is not simply a collection of individual personalities. Rather, I hear Paul saying that the necessary and critical reality of being in relationship with one another helps define a collective personality. And although God has designed local churches to differ from one another in many ways, one thing is not optional, unified community. In verses 15 to 17, we have a case study of a conception of unity that still preserves and honors diversity. If the foot were to say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear were to say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? I am struck here by how Paul blends potentially contrary ideas of unity, individuality, and diversity. Here, the unity, the, the unity of the believers is grounded in that each person is an indispensable part of the body and that it is clearly by the grace of God that each one belongs. At the same time, individuality is honored in that each believer serves the body in a distinct way. So it sounds to me like Paul is saying, Christian unity neither requires uniformity or encourages it. In the same way that the gifts are given by the Spirit as the Spirit chooses, and in order to serve the common good, the distinctive members are called to be part of the body. 
and it is each to contribute its own special and distinctive work to the well-being of the whole body. For Christians, then, it is not only acceptable, but expected and even necessary for the health of the body to be different. In other words, diversity of gifts and diversity of thought are critical to the well-being of the church. Dare we say, then, that the ideal church for Paul is a teeming mass of very different people unified in a Christ-centered community. By design, each person within the church, by design, each person within the body of each church, and each church within the larger body of the global church is designed to reflect God's image in unique and varied ways. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And again in verse 28, God appoints different functions in the church. Paul is emphasizing here that God, through the natural gifts that people possess, provides gifts in the community, and that God expects each of us to bring these gifts to the community for the common good. The arrangement of the members, the assignment of the gifts, and the composition of the body all are from God, and all are be to put into service of others, to enrich and share life and the common good of the believers. And finally, in verses 20 to 27, the focus here is on the member of the bodies, of the body of whom the rest are inclined to think they have no need. Paul here is speaking against the arrogance and self-centeredness of many of the Corinthians, claiming that all members of the body are needed, and God is the one who has placed all the members in the body and who works with them so that there might be no divisions. This text raises several questions for me when I think about how we might apply Paul's teachings to the broader church and our individual church communities. How might we become more comfortable with the messiness and chaos that the body metaphor implies? How might we inspire more unity and diversity in our local churches as well as in the Mennonite church? How might we become more open to and encouraging of each other's gifts and kingdom passions? And what would happen if we put more trust in God rather than our plans and our need for control to organize for mission? Here are some possible responses to these questions. First of all, we could learn to be more comfortable with messiness and chaos. As I said above, I tend to be a planned and controlling type person. So I was struck by a conversation several years ago in a sermon talkback class at Akron. Matt, a 20-something member of our church, gave the sermon that morning. He came to the sermon talkback class, and we were discussing some general issues and the then-recent Columbus MCUSA convention, and specifically the Pink Menos. When Esther, an elderly member of our congregation, speaking for her generation and not necessarily for herself, said, My generation likes things controlled and orderly. We don't like the conflict that these types of issues generate. Matt immediately responded, My generation is different. We like it messy. We like unpredictability. We like when our beliefs and ideas are challenged by others. I felt Matt was speaking directly to me that morning. I could learn that chaos is often my friend. Movements of God are often marked by chaos. They are not systematic and orderly and clean. They rarely come from the strategic plans of local or denominational church leaders. Rather, they are often subversive, initiated by the grassroots, and seemingly come out of nowhere. We used to live in a time when things were slow and predictable, when we actually knew what to do next. But as Margaret Wheatley says, Today we live in a complex world. 
We often don't know what's going on, and we won't be able to understand its complexity unless we spend more time in not knowing. We have to be willing to let go of our certainty and expect ourselves to be confused for a time. End of quote. It's very difficult to give up our certainties, our positions, our beliefs, our explanations. They help define us. They lie at the heart of our theological identity. Yet I believe we as a church will become irrelevant in a changing world if we can't join in Paul's teeming mass of very different people unified in community. We will succeed in bringing about positive change in this world only if we can think and work together in new ways. We don't have to let go of what we believe, but we do need to be curious about what others believe. With our hearts and minds focused on Christ, we have to be willing to let go of our certainty and be confused for a time. Secondly, we could further embrace Paul's conception of unity and diversity. Diversity in community, a novel idea that our modern-day Christian churches, including sometimes our own Mennonite denomination, can't seem to muster enough creativity to pull off. Rather, we seem to spend our creative juices on squelching such expression. In our current times, extremists on the left and extremists on the right, in all religions and cultures, are apparently determined that we shall all be alike. But this can never be. And certainly not what God needs for the work of building his kingdom. If it is truly the receiving of the Holy Spirit that defines faithfulness and not man-made litmus tests, and if God truly expects and needs a diverse church to build his kingdom, are we Mennonites found looking silly in our debates and subsequent splits over the years, whether it be about divorce and remarriage, women in leadership, sexuality, or you name it? As I read this text, I see Paul encouraging a diversity of opinion as a strength of the church and a necessity for remaining relevant in a changing world. Diversity, then, is a gift from God. Unfortunately, in these fearful times, diversity is seen as a threat. The fear of diversity and dialogue led one of our Mennonite brothers to say, as quoted in the online edition of the Mennonite about a year ago, that when we dialogue together about our differences, the devil always wins. End of quote. From my reading of Paul, I would suggest that when we dialogue about our differences in community, it is God that wins. Third, we could do a better job of focusing our structure around the gifts and passions of our community. About a year ago, I was on a panel with Andy Stanley, a megachurch pastor from Atlanta, the son of Charles Stanley, I'm sure some of you recognize. He started a church 12 years ago in Atlanta that today has over 20,000 members on three campuses. After the panel discussion, I asked Andy to what would he attribute this incredible growth. He said that when they started as a house church, they were committed to two principles. First of all, their mission would simply to be Christ to their community. And secondly, they would organize around the gifts and passions of their members. Which leads me to something I saw on the MCUSA Mountain States Conference website. I was struck by what they called foundational ministries and passion ministries. So I exchanged emails with Conference Minister Herm Weaver, and this is what he told me. Foundational ministries are established to deal with mandated conference ministries like stewardship and ministerial issues. In other words, essential functions that the conference must perform given its mandate. 
Passion ministries, on the other hand, are ministries or activities that emerge from the individual passions and callings of groups or individual members. All mission work falls under the passion ministries. At Akron Church, we have some of these passion structures in place that self-organize around members' passions and gifts. These include ministry teams, a missional challenge fund, and our entire Sunday school hour is self-organized. The ongoing challenge for us is for our council and our pastoral team to continue to encourage their use and for us as members to tap into these serving structures. In my experience and in my research, I have found that change happens best not when it starts from a leader announcing a plan, but when it starts deep within a system, when a few people notice something that aligns with their gifts and their passions and they begin a conversation and dream about what might be possible. Change doesn't have to start with power or a position. It can start at the, at the intersection of our gifts and our passion exercised in community. It's messy, it's unplanned, it can be chaotic, but it certainly is born out of the true nature of God, the organic nature of the body with a jazz-like quality. And finally, we could trust God more. What would happen if we put more trust in God rather than our plans to organize for mission? I started by saying that I am by nature a controller, so I need to be first in line when it comes to trusting God more than my elaborate plans. Frankly, as local churches and church organizations, we have bought into the corporate structural models of 20th century industrial America, not necessarily first century Christ-centered community or our 15th century Anabaptist forefathers. We have created top-down driven structures primarily for control. Control for those with the supervision. Certainly the command and control models of corporate America have been useful in many ways, and I do employ parts of this model in my company. But unfortunately and perhaps unwittingly, in overlaying this model on our church organizations, we have too often driven God out of our church structures. Where God needs diversity and chaos to fulfill his mission, our structures promote sameness and control. Where God needs relationships and connections to fuel community, our structures promote isolation and fragmentation. Where God needs passion, our structures promote apathy. Where God needs communities with shared vision, our structures rely on the vision of a few. A friend of mine who served on the missions commission at a sister church for six years recently resigned in frustration. He told me, you just can't get people to volunteer anymore. Our leadership team identified a number of needs in our community, but we can't get people to volunteer to meet these needs. People just aren't as interested anymore in serving the church. They are too busy with other priorities." End of quote. Generally, I find that people are busy with priorities that matter, that are relevant to them. There is often a gap between ideas and actions because People often don't care about ideas that they didn't help invent or don't believe in. When leaders seek to control and impose vision and oughts onto others, apathy and disillusionment often set in. Which brings me full circle back to what Jerry taught us about leadership, gifts, and community through jazz. Members of a jazz band often improvise their performance, creating jazz in real time. Jazz combines the unpredictability of the future with gifts of individuals. There's a basic structure, a song, a tempo, a beat, but that is about as much direction as they have. From this basic structure, they bring a focus and attentiveness to each other and the environment. 
They are relaxed and open to the spontaneous. Despite very different gifts and instruments, all members of the band are important. And they play off each other's gifts with different people taking leadership at different times. What's more, the diversity of gifts gives jazz a unique sound. And all members of a jazz band add value to the sounds that are created. If you are frustrated or disillusioned here at East Chestnut Street, take stock of yourself. Find a passion and respond to Christ's love and community. Don't wait around for the formal structures of the church to tell you what you should be doing to serve Christ. Based on your passions, your gifts, and your calling of community, within the community, find where the Holy Spirit is leading you. Musicians in a jazz band don't sit and wait for others to take leadership. If they did, there would often be no music. Instead, based on their gifts and their read of the moment, they sense opportunity and respond in real time to make beautiful music together. I'm working at my control issues. I hope my wife Anna would say that I've made some progress. Because I see a future in God's kingdom where there is less about control and all about the jazz. Making beautiful music together here at East Chestnut Street in 165-part harmony.